You're listening to episode 160 of the God Center Mom podcast with me, Heather McFadden, and today I'm bringing back licensed counselors and child development experts, Sissy Goff and David Thomas. These are going to be milestones that they're progressing toward throughout their lives, and we we were laughing a few minutes ago about that very phenomenon that we're still working on things like <laughs> empathy and perspective as adults. We want to all be progressing toward these. We know a lot of grown-ups who aren't moving toward these milestones. And that's (laughs) honestly a lot of why we wrote the book. I mean, I think to have done this work as long as we have, we certainly are concerned about kids we're seeing that aren't moving toward these, but even more concerned about parents who are adults, 30, 40, 50 year olds who aren't moving toward these. So how in the world can we offer something to kids that we don't have? What we're seeing is, you know, you think about emotions on a one to 10 scale and kids today are just living in the tent. They don't have that sense of being able to regulate themselves. We have kids who are young as eight that will throw out, I'm going to kill myself, boys and girls. And because I'm counseling primarily girls, I have a conversation a lot with Just because you cry hard and can't breathe doesn't mean you're having a panic attack. None of us can breathe when we cry hard, but they're not worried anymore. They have anxiety. They're not sad. They're depressed. They're not crying hard. They're having a panic attack. We just have moved to this really grandiose scale that takes away from when kids really are having those struggles genuinely. And it's also removing the ability to accurately describe emotions. I'm such a fan of these two. I've had them on separately to see to come on to talk about raising girls and David came on helping us learn the art of nurturing boys and now they're here together to talk about their newest book Are My Kids on Track and there's three different areas of development emotional social and spiritual and today we're focusing in on emotional milestones we're going to talk about a vocabulary perspective, empathy, and resourcefulness. And there's going to be practical tips for you to help your kids develop the emotional maturity that they need to navigate this world. And Sissy brought up, you know, the extremes that a lot of our kids are using and the world influence and the cultural influence on our kids. And I recently heard a statistic that kids consume an average of five hours of media a day. And thinking of my boys and what kind of media they consume, wouldn't it be great if it if they found God there, and if what they watched stimulated faith conversations we wouldn't have otherwise. Well, fortunately, there's a place where that can happen. It's the Jelly Telly app, and it was co-developed. It's a streaming service that uh, was co-developed with VeggieTales creator Phil Vischer, because he knows kids aren't opposed to learning. They're opposed to boring. Well, on Jelly Telly, you can find fun and engaging shows while learning about Jesus. There's 300 hours of entertainment that you can find there, including... The show's Veggie Tales, Allegories, Friends and Heroes, Theo, and many more. It's really easy to watch on your TV, your phone, your tablet. It's available on the App Store, Google Play, Roku Channel Store, and supported Kindle devices. You can go to jellytelly.com, use the coupon code GODCENTEREDMOM, all caps, just for you GODCENTEREDMOM Mom podcast listeners, and you'll get a bonus 10-page Jesus Coloring Book download and your first week of Jelly Telly absolutely free when you sign up. So go check it out. And let's get to my conversation with Sissy and David. Here we go. Hey, Sissy and David, welcome to the God Center Mom podcast. Welcome back, I should say. 
y'all. Thank you, Heather. We're so glad to be back. We uh, love doing this with you. Yeah. Well, and the two of you together is like superpowers, like maximize <laughs> and sparks are flying somewhere. And if y'all haven't listened, Sissy was on episode 141 and Dave talking about raising girls. And David was on back in episode 119 talking about boys. And now we're back all together and talking about our kids and are they on track, which is your newest book, Are My Kids on Track? So thank you for being here and sharing your vast amounts of wisdom, which uh, if if you haven't listened to their other episodes, their wisdom comes from a true legitimate <laughs> daily place with kids and with parents. So Sissy and David, why don't you give people a little glimpse into how you spend your days? We are both counselors at a place called Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, and I have been counseling girls here for 24 years, I think. And David, you have been for 20 20 years now. Yes. So we are in a little yellow house with a white picket fence where we have dogs that are many families, kids, favorite therapists on our staff. And um, one little one kid called it the little yellow house that helps people. And so Mm -hmm. we feel very blessed to get to be a part of this place and do individual counseling and group counseling as well. And we're blessed to pull from all of that wisdom and in and, and this book is chock full of stories and examples because you have it <laughs> to pull from you're not just making stuff up to write a book which so often happens like you're coming from a really knowledgeable place and so we thought today we'd focus in this book covers three broad areas emotional development social development and spiritual development and then milestones kids should reach and so we thought we'd narrow in today on emotional And because boys and girls are a little different in the area of emotions, right? Couldn't be more. That is for sure. And if you're in a marriage, you get that. Um, (laughs) Or or you're a woman and you have boys and you're like, what is going on? Uh, This this section is super helpful. I mean, I was reading it and my mind was blown. My mom picked it up to read and she was like, well, I've already done everything wrong. <laughs> She's like, How well, do you, you li- turned out pretty great. <laughs> so that must not be true. Well, there's, I mean, she said, it says you're supposed to listen without judgment. How do you do that <laughs> without giving criticism? So let's talk through this. Tell us, tell us where you want to start. Where do you want to start in this conversation? I think one of the things, Heather, we'd want to say on the front side, and I hope this is encouragement to parents as they jump into this conversation with us, is that these milestones are different than the physical milestones, let's say, that our kids are moving toward. Like we want to make sure that kids are crawling by a certain age, walking at a certain age, hitting these different benchmarks. And we know that if they don't, then that's going to that's going to affect their overall physical development. If we see evidence of some lags where we need to get underneath that and layer some extra support, these milestones are different in that we're not needing to see evidence that kids have hit this by say age eight or 10 or 15. These are going to be milestones that they're progressing toward throughout their lives. And we, we were laughing a few minutes ago about that very phenomenon that we're still working on things like (laughs) empathy and perspective as adults. And so We'd want to throw that out there on the front side and just say, don't go into a state of panic because we're all working toward these. We're all progressing. To- Actually, that's not fair to say. We want to all be progressing toward these. We know a lot of grownups who aren't moving toward these milestones. Yeah. And that's <laughs> honestly a lot of why we wrote the book. I mean, I think to have done this work as long as we have, we certainly are concerned about kids we're seeing that aren't moving toward these, but even more concerned about parents who are 
adults, 30, 40, 50 year olds who aren't moving toward these. So how in the world can we offer something to kids that we don't have? Well, and you think about, you know, we can only give what we know or what we've experienced. And if our, you know, our grandparents generation barely talked about their emotions, how they felt. And then, you know, our parents are coming off of that. It's like, we, we haven't been given a lot of words. And then maybe I liked some of your examples. We've been given too many words, like a little dramatic about some things that we're feeling and a, a little too much, um, in the emotion side that we're allowing, um, and even overcompensating, yes. like you're saying, for what we didn't grow up with. Yes. Exactly. So, so this healthy like conversation about these are this is what a milestone would look like, and and this is how you can help your child and yourself. Uh, I thought it was so so helpful to me as a grown woman to read through. So, yeah, that's a really good thing to say, David. Thank you. Well, and I'll add to it. I, I shared this great line in a movie that I saw years ago that I thought was so on target about hitting that good middle space that emotions are like children. You cannot stuff them in the trunk, but you don't want them driving the car. Either. You know that the, the, exactly. the place that we want them is in the back seat where yeah. we're, we're present with them, but they're yes. not in charge. They're not driving the car, but they're not stuffed in the trunk of the car either. So yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert would say uh, to fear, you can, you can, you can ride the back seat. You don't get to pick the music. You don't get to drive. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's good. That's good. Uh, the kids and in the trunk. <laughs> boys and girls and their emotions would try and drive in completely different ways. Yes. Likely. For yeah, certain. that's true. And our families can be driven by that if if right. we're not in touch with what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, um, and helping set good boundaries and helping them develop healthy outlets. So, all right, here we go. What are we going to hit first? <laughs> well, hit the- I, I think you just nailed it. That's kind of the one-two punch right there. Like for us, the starting point is figuring out what do I feel and then what to do with it. Yeah. Like that's That's the jumping off place, I think. And, and really where every parent wants to be moving with kids, how do I help them identify accurately what it is that I feel like I talk about with boys? The very first milestone is what we call emotional vocabulary. Mm. And that is really no different than developing a vocabulary that kids do in the school setting a lot that allows them to learn to read and write. But unless I have a mastery of language, I can't do that. And so the same with emotions, unless I have an emotional vocabulary. I cannot articulate what I feel and I sure can't figure out what to do with it. So that's really where we start yeah. with with kids and with parents of just how do we help kids develop an emotional vocabulary? And certainly with the boys that I see, it's harder for them. I think one of the myths that I want to dispel on the front side with parents of boys is that we've long believed that boys don't have a lot of emotions. Yeah. And I don't think that could be any less true. Like boys have plenty of emotions. They just have difficulty saying what they feel. I have a Second and third grade group of boys I leave on Mondays, and I had a little boy who came in for the very first time who looked noticeably nervous, trouble separating out from his mom. Understandably so. He was about to walk into a room of strangers mm-hmm. and begin an experience he had no idea what he was walking into. And you know, midway through him talking for the first time, his little lip was quivering. <laughs> and so this little guy in his group who is so seasoned, I call him, he's like an empathy ninja. He's unbelievable. <laughs> and he looked at this little boy and he said, what are you feeling? And he said, I'm bored. Now, you couldn't be bored in this room if you tried. Like there are 12 second and third grade boys in there. It's like swimming in a pool of Red Bull. It's so much energy and exuberance. You couldn't be bored if you gave it your best attempt. But yeah. he 
doesn't know how to say. I feel nervous mm. because I just had to say goodbye to my mom or I feel scared because I don't know what we're going to be doing and I don't know any of you. So that's a great example of unless you know what you feel, you can't figure out what to do next. And so that's really what vocabulary is about. It's just helping kids progress toward that milestone of being able to say what it is that they feel. And what are some practical ways as moms we can help with that vocabulary building? One of the first recommendations we make is getting a basic feelings chart that is no different than how every kindergarten classroom across the country is armed with a chart that has the letters of the alphabet. And it's just that that phenomena that to the degree that kids can see the letters as they're learning them, it strengthens the connection. So we encourage parents to like put one of those on a refrigerator, hang one in a playroom or keep keep one in the car when you pick your kids up from school and you're driving home and asking about their day. That is a reference point. That's a beginning place. And I have a personal story because I have your your feelings chart that you sent me (laughs) on the fridge. And we had this moment and I had one boy and he just like kept causing issues with each of his brothers. And I'm getting really frustrated and I'm coming towards him and I'm like, what is going on? Why are you acting this way? And he's doing this thing where he's retreating like a hurt puppy, like in an overdramatic, like annoying way. Like you're like, you're like, <laughs> like making the extra sounds and it's just making me more upset. And I'm, we're literally having this interaction right in front of the fridge. And so I get struck in a moment of sanity to point to the, the chart, I said, can you just show me what you're feeling? <laughs> and he said, embarrassed and hurt. And I had no idea that those were his feelings. I thought he had no clue of his impact on his our family or what he was doing. But he was embarrassed at how he was treating people. And he was hurt that I was getting upset with him. And I had no idea. And it was this powerful moment of like, oh, I can deal with those. You know, I can deal with that. It's when I thought in my mind, based on your behavior, that you didn't care. Uh, So super powerful. I would highly recommend these feeling charts. With You just picture a bunch of, like, smiley faces, but on everybody's smiling. Um, (laughs) On a a board, you can find – I'm sure you could Google it. Y'all have a link? Can I put a link in the show notes? We are about to have a link okay. where we sell ours online, but okay. we're not yes. quite there yet. Okay. You can put a link. You can put a link to raising boys and girls absolutely that has a range of the things that we offer in all our books. And as Sissy shared, we're working on getting that. Okay. We sell we sell that at events when we travel. We're working okay. on getting that available to purchase. All right. So I'll put the link, and then maybe by the t- by the time this airs, it'll be there. It'll be ready. It'll we be hope ready. so. Right. But I love that story. That's exactly what we want it to be about, like helping kids figure out what is going on inside of me. And, and then, to, as you said, then I can work with that. Yeah. And to realize that for most kids, their emotion will be funneled into one area or another. I mean, I sit with so many parents of preschool age girls who the only emotion they talk about is anger mm. because those kids don't know how to name it and they feel out of control. And as psychologists have said for a million years, anger is a secondary emotion. And so there's usually something else underneath it, but it comes out that way. And that's, that is why exactly what you all are saying, why we want to give them words to express what really is going on at a deeper level. More specifically, like narrow exactly. in, narrow in. Yes. What are some, you, you mentioned for, for boys, some stumbling blocks are that we don't acknowledge that they even have emotions. We don't, we don't give them the language. I mean, it was really helpful for me to see uh, you wrote, you know, sometimes they'll use it really extreme statements like I wish I was dead or I should kill myself. I hate my life even as early as six, seven or eight, because it's like 
I feel so strongly. I don't know how to communicate this. The strongest thing I can say are these right. words. And parents freak out and they're like, oh my goodness, we need to see see someone. This is really serious. You know, tell us to talk yeah. us through that. Like if one of our kids is saying something really strong like that, especially boys. Well, I think that kind of bleeds over into the second milestone, which is perspective. And, yeah. and David could speak to this more for boys. But I think what we're seeing is, you know, you think about it, emotions on a one to 10 scale and kids today are just living in the tent. They don't mm. have that sense of being able to regulate themselves. And so, and, and I think even culturally, the higher rates of suicide, all the things that are going on, the prevalence of anxiety, which is a childhood epidemic in America today, those things that are really genuine are being talked about in this great way when they're from a genuine place, but it's also becoming the vernacular of kids in common places. And so we have kids who are young as eight that will throw out, I'm going to kill myself, boys and girls. And because I'm counseling primarily girls, I have a conversation a lot with just because you cry hard and can't breathe doesn't mean you're having a panic attack. None of us can breathe when we cry hard, but they're not worried anymore. They have anxiety. They're not sad. They're depressed. They're not crying hard. They're having a panic attack. We just have moved to this really grandiose scale that takes away from when kids really are having those struggles genuinely. And it's also removing the ability to accurately describe emotions. And so we have, we talk about that in the class that we teach on this, on this topic, but how important it is to have a scale where in better moments with kids where they're doing okay to have them name what a 10 is for them. And then they can go back to, if your child gets in the car after school and they've had a terrible day and says, this is the worst day of my whole life that you can start with empathy and listen and then say, tell me what number that is on your scale. Mm -hmm. And then that gives them that automatic perspective that we feel like kids are really losing. And I think David and I would say both more than ever before in the years we've been counseling. Yeah. And I don't know. That's really interesting. Even looking at social media and how even moms or dads are talking about their day. I'm so depressed or I'm so this. I'm it's, it's, there is true depression, but there's also maybe, we're making it seem bigger and they're, they're following our lead in that. Yes. Yes. Kids have even been diagnosing themselves in my office and especially (laughs) adolescent girls, you know, where everything feels big with PTSD, Mm. which is just sickening in some ways to me when I think about the servicemen and women and uh, who've been fighting in our, for our country Mm. who have been diagnosed with that in a genuine place. And you're saying that because you had a bad day. Now you have PTSD. Like let's get back to what's reality Mm. where Mm. we can, really talk about because like David said, we can't, until we can get to the reality of what's going on, we can't really even help move forward. So in a moment as a parent, instead of dismissing it, the one way would be like, oh, that's ridiculous. You don't put, you know, PTSD. Or you're fine. That's not a big deal. Not dismissing it, but at the same time, not, oh, oh my goodness, you do. And going to all the experts and we need to get some medication is to have a conversation, have that, that chart ready, the meter, the drama meter of like, okay, let's go back. This is a good day. This is a bad day. Where are you on this scale? Um, A 10 would be an absolute loss or major tragedy. Right. And, and this was maybe a three. So, yes. And that we can still say, gosh, it does sound like you had a hard day without it having to be a 10, because sometimes I think they do use 
big words because they can't get our attention because we're either not listening or minimizing it or we're so busy. And so they feel like they have to. And so that's where the empathy piece of it is really important. And you, you point that out as a stumbling block for girls too, is, is because of the family noise and because they're not typically the squeaky wheel, they become that by adding drama. Into the exactly. Situation. Yeah, exactly. They like to add drama no matter what, but yeah, yes, especially. yeah, yeah, yeah. So giving them that space to truly communicate um, is helpful and lowering yes. that threshold. Okay. So with boys in perspective, let's talk about that. How do we help? How do we help them? Because I know as a mom, you know, one big struggle for those moms of boys listening is that we intervene. We try to like, we don't want to ha- let them struggle. So instead of supporting them to figure something out, we just kind of like do it for them. (laughs) So talk us through that, David. How do we help our boys? I think that is uh, an easy trap to step into. I really do. I so appreciate your honesty in that. And you used a word a few minutes ago that I would say is a better place to step into in those moments, which is space. And I, I talk about a concept in the second milestone and in the fourth milestone of resourcefulness, both where I talk about the gift of space for a boy. And I, and, and I go on to talk about how so often boys have a lot of physicality with their emotions. So they need an outlet where they can release some of that intensity they need. You know, it's why boys, I think, are so prone to clenching their fist or gritting their teeth or screaming while adolescent boys punch holes in drywall. <laughs> you know, it's this sense of I have all this pent up energy and nothing to do with it. And so in that moment, when we sit him down and start talking at him mm. and talking to him, I think we are working more against him than for him. Mm. And, and there are two traps there. One is the very one you named. We're doing the work for him. We're doing more problem solving for him than he's doing for himself. And two, we are working against the way he's hardwired. Like he, he's not primarily an auditory learner. He's primarily a visual, spatial, experiential learner. So let's give him the experience of releasing some of that intensity, some space to do that. And I kind of walk parents through in the book a blueprint of here's a way where you can create some space and involve him in the setting this up so that he's more likely to use it. And then let's go there with him in the beginning. And then eventually he'll go there on his own. So you're, and, you're, and you're talking figure. about a literal space, like some, you know, we talk about I emotional am. space, but in the book you, you outline going to the space, like it is a, and unfortunately in Texas, we don't have basements. That would have been really helpful, but like <laughs> an actual place where there's, yes. you know, the punching bag and the, you know, a bean bag maybe, or something like if yes. they're into reading a place for quiet reading or Legos or whatever it is to physically be. Yes. And it could be a corner of a playroom, a corner of a mudroom, corner of their bedroom. There's not a right or wrong place to put this, but just some identified space. So wait, I have a question. So I will, I will sometimes say, you know, okay, when I know that they need to be away from us because they're causing more damage and there's something else going on here, I'll say you need to go to your room, but that seems punitive. Yes. And it's got to be different than that. If you have a timeout space or a timeout chair, you don't want it to be in the same place because you're right. If we send them there when they're feeling a lot of emotions, we're actually sending a message that says, when you feel feelings, you're being bad. And that's not at all what we want to be saying to kids. So this is a different space that we've involved them with. Hey buddy, let's, let's pick out where you want that to be. Let's pick out what you want in that space so that it's not, I'm sending you there punitively. And again, that's part of going there with him in the beginning. The other great advantage of this space is 
I talk in the book about how boys are so vulnerable, especially with moms, to this pattern that I call anchoring, like where I'm going to anchor myself to you when I'm struggling for the very reasons we just named. I want you to problem solve for me instead of me doing the work. I want you to feel as bad as I feel, that misery loves company phenomenon. (laughs) And so when I go there with him in the beginning, we're both kind of releasing it. If he refuses to go there and is just trying to anchor himself to me, I say to moms, you can go there on your own. And it's great. You know, if he's like, I'm not going there, I refuse to go. He's being stubborn or belligerent. You go there on your your own. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee there's not a boy in the universe that would not like to watch their mother punch a punching bag. (laughs) You know, that is just something he (laughs) wants to see. That's like pure entertainment. So that's a way to get him there. And it's a way to separate out from him when he's anchoring himself to you. So good. And how young, I mean, I know there's some moms listening that have littles. um, And maybe that's, I don't know. Is it bad to have like a playpen? I mean, how little does this start where they're going to need like space to just let it out or have emotions? I I think it's as early as boys can walk. I really do. I think it's as early as boys can walk. They can, we can see evidence of that growing need to release. And so, yes, putting them in a confined space like a playpen where they can just kind of fall apart, melt down, throw things against the net Hmm. could be really useful. And then with toddlers, I think it's not too early at all to establish that space. And again, going there with them. Yeah. And again, not as like a punishment place. I think that that's a key distinctive. I really liked because there are times I want it to just I know that they need the space, but it ends up being the same location where they get (laughs) when they get in trouble. And I'm like, oh, how do I how do I separate this? So that's that's really good. And you don't have to have a huge house to do it. You just not at all. (laughs) Not at all. All right. So what what else do we need to talk about? So we've got we've got a. Emotional vocabulary and perspective and empathy and resourcefulness. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about empathy. I think with empathy, you know, we talked so much about our conversation a few minutes ago about learning to figure out what I feel and what to do with it. I don't think we can really read the emotions of others and respond to them until we have hit that first or progressing toward that first milestone of what do I feel and what I need to do with it. So I think it's a building block on that first two milestones in a significant way. That's why we put it third. And it really is about figuring out how can I read what's going on with another person and respond to what they need. And I think about that little boy that I gave the example of a few minutes ago, his ability to be able to ask that little boy, what are you feeling? He was dialed in enough to be able to tell this little guy's struggling. He's missing his mom right now. He's having a hard time. And what he said to him after the little boy finally got to a point, after he said he was bored, he said, I miss my mom. Mm. And this this little empathy ninja of a boy at eight years of age was able to look him in the eyes and say, I can remember how much I missed my mom the first time I came to group two. And I felt real. Yeah, he said, I felt really nervous. And what a gift he gave to him in that moment. I mean, I want this for my kids. I want them to be surrounded by empathetic kids. So there's this side of me that's like, can we just tell every parent in the earth to teach their kids empathy? Because I'm kind of over like the pain and hurt. I know it's not fun to watch your kids hurt, but yeah, how, how do we help train that? How do we help train empathy? Like you said, of course, start with them, but do we practice? How do we practice? We do a lot of practice and we talk about how practice makes progress, not perfect. I hate that statement of practice makes perfect because I practiced a lot of things that I never got perfect at. Right. But practice, practice makes progress. And one of the things we wanted to do at the end of every chapter was put in 10 practical, user-friendly things that a parent could do right there in that moment in their home. Mm-hmm. And so every chapter ends with 
10 easy things you can be doing. And I think we practice, we even talk about how we can practice empathy with kids when we watch movies with them. Right. We, right. we coach parents through how to practice empathy when you're reading books with your toddlers at night. And so, role playing with them, teaching yes. them to role play where you're asking them questions where they're having to see another person's perspective mm-hmm. feels really significant. And then the other thing I would say that we talk about in the book that we want to throw in is there's this great study out of UCLA where they took away social media and screens for kids for just five days, a group of sixth graders and how much better those kids were at reading emotions on someone else's face after just five days without screens. And so even that piece of it, thinking about limiting their technology use and how do we fold that into helping them put their phones down, their iPads down, gadgets, whatever it is. So they look someone else in the face and learn to connect in that way because they're not doing that when they're looking at a screen. Wow. That's powerful right there for all of us. <laughs> right, all of right. Us. us too. Exactly. All right. So, okay. Let, I know y'all have people to see, cases to see, so we don't want to take up all your time, but can we hit resourcefulness real quick? Yes. Yes. I, you know, it is one that I think is also declining significantly for kids. And I was sitting with an adolescent girl in my counseling office, and what she said to me was, I don't want to grow. I just want to be understood. Hmm. And we all feel that sometimes. But what what we're seeing is that very phenomenon David was talking about earlier, where even with kids who have genuine struggles, that even when you think about children with anxiety, that we step in and in effect pat the walls so that they don't have to do what's ultimately the scary thing where they have to work through it. And, and what we want to do is equip kids to work through whatever it is that's in front of them. We talk a lot about that we're so busy being their resources that they don't develop resourcefulness. And so the magic formula that we land on over and over are empathy and questions. And we already talked about the empathy part of it. That sounds really hard. Or yes, I can see where you're really confused about what to do about that. What do you think would help? Mm -hmm. What do you feel like God would want you to do? Where we learn to ask questions that enable them to connect the dots rather than just us connecting the dots for them feels like how we lead them towards resourcefulness rather than just throwing them into the answer. That's good. That's good. And, and when you're saying, you know, it's kind of like grit, like our grandparents have, but we're kind of lacking, like they give up too fast. They think it should be done for them. There's a lot of blame shifting. Yes. How, How do we help them? You know, you said asking the questions and, and, and empathizing, but are there any other tips on helping them develop this? You know, do we literally set up scenarios where they, do we put them in an escape room? Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. I'll go play the escape game. That really is probably a great idea. Yeah. yeah. I know uh, we played when, one. We played one on uh, Sunday night. My boys got me one, you know, it's like a one-time use kind uh, of box game. And it was interesting which boys peeled off because it got too hard. And yes. which boys were like, no, we are getting this done. We are getting out of this room. It is very interesting how everyone's and – the, and the persistent ones are the ones that normally bother me because of their persistence. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I went to my uh, first hockey game as an adult recently, and it was really fascinating. We have a we talk about the boundaries milestone later in the social development part of it. And I was walking into the arena, I guess is what you call it. And they made the group that I was with. They made a stop because they said it's disrespectful to walk into the stadium during a play, which I thought was so interesting. All the football games I've been to in my whole life. I've never heard anyone say that. And so then the play's over and we walk in. And literally six minutes later, 
the whole crowd is, is shouting, you suck, you suck, it's all your fault. Mm. To the players on the field. I mean, I've never heard anything like it. I was astounded. And I thought, that's part of why we're not getting to resourcefulness is the blame shifting that's going yeah. on even in that place. Like, yeah. what are we doing that we're screaming this at these men on the field and all the kids in the room that are screaming it too and feel like that's okay. And what, what researchers will say is when something goes wrong in a boy's world, he blames somebody else. And when something goes wrong in a girl's world, she blames herself. Oh. And and both of those things hinder resourcefulness because he's not taking responsibility and she's turned inward so much that she feels paralyzed in the midst of it. And so the question becomes, how do we empower each of them to move forward in a way where they're genuinely working on their own stuff? Yeah. What's the answer? <laughs> what? David, yeah. Fix the fix our cultural problems right now, David, please. I love that you brought that up because I was thinking that boys go there on their own. They get stuck in blame on their own on a good day under the best of circumstances. So if culturally we're feeding them that idea, that message, that it's all your fault, we're just perpetuating something that's already going on. And yeah. interestingly enough, that's I, I break down a lot of what to do with boys and blame and the social milestones. It made me think, I'm so glad you're willing to let us have a part B of this conversation. Yes, I know. We, we, we are not going to finish it all today, you, you guys. We're not going to answer all these we questions. We didn't get to everything today. Can we come back? Yes. Yeah. We'll fix this, the cultural problem of blame shifting in the next, <laughs> in our next episode. In our next episode. Y'all, thank you so much. Where do they find you online real quick? Raisingboysandgirls.com raisingboysandgirls.com. All right. Thank you. And they will be back with talking about social milestones as we head into the school year. So thanks Heather. We can't wait. David. All right. Adios. Thanks Heather. Bye. Bye. Okay. I know we covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So I thought I'd recap some ideas, some takeaways from our conversation. Of course, you can always go to their site and hopefully they'll have that feelings chart or you can create your own if you're seeing some dominant feelings in your family. But that would be our first homework, a feelings chart to help your kids get the vocabulary of what they're actually feeling instead of just mad or sad, more complexities to what they're feeling. And then the second tip is for your kids that are maybe older or maybe even younger, you could start this drama meter and you know, talking about the extremes, the 10 versus maybe a bad day would be a three and even having a physical written out meter where they can show you where they are. And I've seen it with kids where you use smiley faces um, for the one and then like a super like exploding face for the 10 or really sad face, whatever the extreme emotion is for them dominantly. And then, you know, show it getting sadder and redder as it goes from one to a 10. Uh, another idea that, that David brought up for is the boys is the space idea. Um, I talked about it with my boys even that I want them to have a place in our home and they can decide, you know, what is most meaningful to them if it's a quiet or if it's an active place. And so when I say, you know, it's time to go to our space instead of them battling me to go there that they see it as a respite, as a good thing. And uh, so think through that with your kids. What would that look like? And like David said, it could you can do this with your little kids. Uh, and then let's talk about empathy. You could um, work with your kids, watch some movies, talk through what are the emotions of the characters in the show they're having, and talk through, you know, books you're reading and and talking about emotions of other people helping model for them empathy with how you respond to your kids being upset instead of dismissing it using language like, 
wow, that sounds like you really had a hard day, or I can only imagine that that would be difficult. I remember when I had a time and and share a similar emotion so that they can see the modeling of empathy. And then that resourcefulness, you know, we didn't get to really talk about this super a lot, but I think for, I think (laughs) teaching this is actually on us. It requires us to ask questions instead of jumping in and solving for them. So when our kids are upset about something that happened at school or with their siblings, asking a question of how they will solve it instead of going in and and solving it for them. And if they're really struggling with answering your questions from speech pathology, we would use choices or um, you could use multiple, you could use fill in the blank kind of support and cueing to help your kids come to the conclusion that's a healthy emotional reaction to their situation. If you're listening to the show and you sometimes hear us say show notes or we'll put that put that link in the show notes and you're like, what, how do I get these? Or I don't want to have to go to the site all the time. And you want those show notes to land in your inbox. All you have to do is go to godcenteredmom.com and on the sidebar, it'll say, a pl- it'll have a place for your email address. And then underneath, there'll be two options. One says GCM weekly episodes and the other says GCM podcast club. If you check GCM weekly episodes, then when I release a new episode, those show notes will land in your inbox. One, you'll be reminded that there's a new show out and two, you'll have all those resources ready and handy for when you want to reference them. Now the podcast club, if you don't know, it's like a book club but with podcasts and I provide the curriculum and you do all of the work. I'm basically lazy in that part. Um, It's very organic. Let's use the hipster talk. Uh, It's very organic. I let you pick the group and who you want to meet with and where and how. I know some groups are virtual, so they're meeting uh, basically online with each other. But the goal is to not mom alone. I do not want you to mom alone. And I am just excited to provide a tool to let you have an excuse to get together with other moms and talk about marriage and and family life and your walk with God. Uh, So you could click that other box, put your email address in and click the GCM Podcast Club and you will get emails from me with the curriculum links and um, any updates we have about Podcast Club stuff. Thank you. I'm so grateful for you. And as I've been impressed upon in my emotional life, go laugh. I think I'm going to just start on Instagram posting like laugh more, hashtag laugh more, and try to get us to laugh more at the life we have, uh, in the life we have, and just enjoy. Lots more joy. That's what I think I learned from Israel. I need to laugh more. All right. Have a great week. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the God-Centered Mom podcast. If you're looking for more resources on how to replace me with he, go to godcenteredmom.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guest. I want you to really understand and know that God is just as present while you are washing dishes at your kitchen sink as while you are worshiping him in a church pew. He sees your service to your family and he is pleased. As it says in Zephaniah 317, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Have a great day.